welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the Madden America podcast. And this week we present the third interview in our science and pseudoscience series. And in this episode, Dr. Sharna Olfman interviews Kelly Brogan, MD. I'm Dr. Sharna Olfman. And I would like to welcome you to the Science and Pseudoscience of Mental Health podcast for Madden America. I am so pleased to be speaking with Dr. Kelly Brogan, who is a specialist in natural approaches to women's mental health. Dr. Brogan is a triple board certified MD who graduated from Weill Cornell Medical College, and she also has a degree in cognitive neuroscience from MIT. Dr. Brogan is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, A Mind of Your Own, The Truth About Depression and How Women Can Heal their bodies and reclaim their minds. And she is also co-editor of the textbook, Integrative Therapies for Depression. And you can connect with Dr. Brogan on her very extensive website, kellybroganmd.com. Dr. Brogan, welcome. And you are, I want you to know that you are the absolute perfect guest for the Science and Pseudoscience of Mental Health podcast, because in your book, a mind of your own, you address the pseudoscience of the chemical imbalance theory of mental illness. You address the pseudoscience of um, the alleged efficacy of psychiatric medication. In particular, you take on the SSRI antidepressants, but then you use rigorous science to introduce a really fresh understanding of the nature of mental health and how to prevent and treat mental health issues. And that's where I would like to start today. I'd like to start with a, co- a conversation about the science that is kind of at the heart of, um, of your approach to understanding mental health. And uh, again, referencing your book, A Mind of Your Own, you um, speak a great deal about um, the role of inflammation, about the integrative nature or functioning of different bodily systems. In particular, you emphasize the gastrointestinal, the immune, the endocrine, and the nervous systems. Their conversations in turn with with our internal ecosystem, the microbiome, and our external ecosystem, which unfortunately is increasingly toxic these, these days. So if you could unpack that science a little bit and help us to understand the connection um, between all of these systems and um, the symptoms we associate with um, mental health challenges like depression, anxiety, brain fog, etc. That was such a comprehensive overview. I, I feel I almost have nothing to say which is rare. <laughs> so I appreciate that uh, very, very much. It's a wonderful, um, you know, sort of foundational orientation towards a new kind of conversation. And I think it's perhaps my most I- important credential um, is that I myself put into remission an autoimmune condition that would otherwise have been chronic. So that would, so that stands as, as sort of the reason we're even having this conversation is that that pivotal experience. Um, it's also how I was open enough to consider, uh, as a card-carrying, pill-pushing psychiatrist, uh, Robert Whitaker's um, innovative and intrepid work. You know, the only reason, as a prescribing psychiatrist, I would have ever even considered reading *Anatomy of an Epidemic* was because I had already uh, sort of raised some red flags around my conventional approach and education because it it had you know had me bumping up against the glass ceiling of what conventional medicine you know really had to offer through my own health experience right right, right. so i was diagnosed postpartum uh with hashimoto's thyroiditis and i was at that time one of the first 300 what are called reproductive psychiatrists uh, which is a burgeoning specialty 
um, this probably won't shock you, but it shocks many that there's such a thing as a specialist who is expert in prescribing to pregnant and breastfeeding women. Mm. So that that's how much I believed in the pharmaceutical right. model that I actually right. thought, let me expose our most vulnerable, mm. you know, to, to these um, patentable chemicals because they are indicated, right? This is the only responsible way to meet the, ch- the unfortunate challenges um, that genetics and bad luck and sort of wrong place, wrong time bring us, you know, to encounter. And it was through, um, you know, my sort of inbuilt skepticism around the capacity for conventional medicine to really offer me anything but a lifelong prescription myself mm-hmm. as a as patient, which was interestingly, the first time I'd ever really been a patient in my life, um, that I chose to go to a naturopath. And that was very unlike me. <laughs> you know, if you, you can't really imagine um, how unlike me that was at the time. And I looked back and I thought, wow, I was really being led somewhere, you know, beyond what I could have comprehended. Um, and I, I encountered a naturopath who was very science-minded, this was very important because if she had been burning sage and, mm-hmm. you know, with, with crystals and feathers hanging around, I would have turned around immediately. Right, but she right. was, she is a um, very academic woman, a very bright, and she really spoke to me in a language that was, you know, my religion at the time. You know, it's even called scientism for that reason, that it's, it's an orientation towards science as, as being sort of the end of the conversation rather than a process. Mm-hmm. And that you know, that attracted me, I guess, and opened me. And it was through, you know, my own work on myself and using lifestyle interventions like dietary change and exercise and, um, you know, sort of educated consumerism around, Mm -hmm. you know, products and toxicant exposures um, that I was able to see in black and white, my own antibody numbers go from the high 2000s to normal. And I was able to see, you know, for anyone who knows about these this terminology, my TSH to go, you know, into the normal range. And that really inspired me, but it also inspired a lot of anger um, in me and and sort of righteous rage, really, you know, that I had never been taught in my very expensive, um, very stressful, you know, Mm. uh, blood, sweat and tears kind of a training that, that any of these factors were even relevant, let alone impactful, let alone, you know, that remission was even really anything a patient could let alone, you know, um, right. consistently work towards. So that was my introduction to what is called psychoneuroimmunology, which is the catch-all term for what you were referring to. Um, it's actually about three decades old, and many different people have been credited with its inception. Um, w- one of the female uh, researchers I like to reference is Candace Pert, uh, who uh, wrote a, a wonderful book called The Molecule of Emotion, but had uh, many, many um, important credentials, including that she, you know, worked at the NIH and discovered the opiate receptor, and very much helped us to understand that what we are calling emotions, right? What we were calling these intangible, largely secondary artifacts of the human experience, are in fact encoded physiologically. And you know, here is the peptides to prove it, and this is happening all throughout the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is very groundbreaking because otherwise we had been thinking about you know, sort of mind-body very in a very Cartesian fashion, right? The legacy of Descartes, which is that the mind is kind of up here and the body's down there and never the two shall meet kind of a thing. And in fact, you know, when we look at, at published literature, research and, and otherwise, that tells a very different story about the interconnectedness of these systems, well, then it kind of changes everything. Mm-hmm. Then we, we have to rethink the way that we've been looking at at allopathic medicine, which is go to your specialist, right? You go to your, your stomach doctor, your head doctor, your you know, skin doctor. Mm-hmm. And what happens when all of these are different um, you know, sort of strands on the spider web of you? And, and so through that lens, what's the highest impact way to realign, to restabilize? And it turns out that there isn't um, a, a magic pill right? That there's not a chemical approach that can meet that level of complexity. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, sort of aligning with the ways in which we are designed to thrive. Well, turns out that's more than just a wellness strategy. turns out that may actually be the only way out of chronic illness. 
Right. So, I mean, it's so fascinating that your kind of gateway to this new understanding, uh, this new approach to treating women with mental health issues was through a thyroid autoimmune issue. And, you know, that speaks so powerfully to the sort of integrative nature of health and mental health, as you were, uh, as you were just stating. I'm kind of curious to know whether you yourself thought or whether you were diagnosed with postpartum depression before you got the proper um, diagnosis of um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis? Yes. It's a great question because I have come to really deeply regard the significance of our childhood wounds, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and our patterns and conditioned behavior from childhood in our um, manifest personality traits, but then also in our relationship to uh, what we might call pathology um, or the ways in which we are identified as patients. And the only difference between me and one of my severely ill patients is that I happen to have a defensive structure that's very adaptive, right? That society prizes the ways in which I have learned to protect my woundedness and vulnerability. And one of those ways is that I, I seek intellectual mastery, right? So whenever I feel vulnerable, scared, uncomfortable, um, anger, shame, you name it, the first thing I do is try to get an intellectual hold on it, right? So that's what I did when I started to struggle with symptoms of brain fog and mood flatness and you know, forgetfulness and feeling disconnected. That's a very, very big, anyone who knows anything about postpartum depression, it's really almost a misnomer on some level because the flatness and disconnection is far more of a prevalent um, source of distress than angst or sadness or melancholy, right? right. Um, and the only reason that I never got, you know, captured by the system is because I was able to defensively compensate, you know, through an obsessive process of learning about what was going on with me. And I am very comfortable in the scientific realm. So that's what I did. And and it's no coincidence, as you're pointing out, that I ended up learning a lot about the relevance of thyroiditis and thyroid imbalance to mental health and specifically anxiety, depression, but even bipolar um, labels and specifically postpartum psychosis uh, and depression. Right. So I thought, well, look at this. I've had a lived experience of the relevance of an immu- immunologically driven endocrine dis- disturbance to the labeling of uh, you know psychiatric psychiatric pathology, and that can't be an accident, right? That I, you know this is one of what I call the the great psychiatric pretenders. That if you don't know that this could be relevant to your story, well, then you're essentially treating right. you know your Hashimoto's with Zoloft. And does that make right. any sense to anyone? Right. Right. And um, you do talk in your book about how um, common it is, how common it is for women to experience some form of um, thyroid dysfunction following giving birth um, because of, uh, you know, many other uh, factors that are stressing women's minds and bodies. And I'm I'm curious to know um, how often you think... um, a thyroid uh, condition is misdiagnosed as postpartum mm-hmm. depression, whether that's a, a very common phenomenon. So, you know, statistically it ranges, but, you know, the, the most common statistic is about 10%, 10%. Uh, postpartum women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how they capture these statistics, who even knows? Uh, right. But in my practice, it's about 80% of those who come wow. to me postpartum have antibody activity. Now, what's interesting wow. about the literature is that it suggests that simply antibody activity, like j- just autoimmune activation or imbalance, um, mm-hmm. is, is significantly correlated clinically to uh, the symptoms of depression and anxiety. Those are the most commonly studied, although there mm-hmm. are papers on um, diagnosis of bipolar and, and psychosis. That's relevant, right? Because you don't have to, what if your doctor is just checking a TSH, which is the sort of catch-all, oh, we've screened for hypothyroidism. You're not going to see that this is a relevant uh, driver for you. And, you know, for many of us, understanding the why Mm -hmm. is really important. 
right? Yes, the label can provide some relief, you know, and, and many identified psychiatric patients will tell you, I felt better knowing that I had a problem, knowing that it was a real problem. And somebody told right. me that I had, you know, postpartum OCD or that I, I really do have postpartum depression and, and right. don't understand what that means. And, and it's a real thing. And, and right. yeah, what I would argue is that, it, you know, it's a bit of, of sort of like a cold comfort, right? Because mm-hmm. what comes with that um, in, in my opinion, based on the literature, and there's only three uh, to date randomized trials of antidepressants for postpartum depression, what we're calling postpartum depression. So this is, you're entering into the wild west mm-hmm. of, of clinical um, applications of pharmaceutical right. products. Right. And with, with a population that I feel we should be really um, turning towards with a very different level of, of regard. Right. Absolutely. So what you're saying is, Yes, there's comfort in being told, I recognize that you're suffering. I recognize that you're struggling and that something needs to be done. But the unfortunate um, uh, aftermath of that is that the treatment will then be one one of these handful of antidepressant medications um, that not only will not address the underlying issue, whether it be a thyroid issue or a psychological issue or a uh, broader cultural issue. Yes. Um, so it, it then the woman who has this kind of brief sense of being seen and understood is given the wrong kind of treatment, which then exacerbates the issue. And I think this is especially relevant because of this very recent um, rollout of the latest drug for postpartum depression, Brexanolone. The I think the commercial name is Zolreso. Um, and I, I have to say that I heard your video post about uh, Brexanolone. I thought it was outstanding. I thought that you addressed, you know, some of the broader cultural psychological, spiritual issues really, really beautifully. And I'm wondering if you could, you know, speak to your concerns once again um, for us about this latest rollout of this very specific uh, new drug for, for what is called postpartum depression. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's, it's something like, when, when you were referring to the kind of help we're offering women, it's something like I use the analogy of, uh, you know, if she's falling off a cliff and you're handing her the blade edge of a knife, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, she can grab onto it, but is that, is that really the best we can do? And, right. you know, I've, I've come to appreciate the, the multifactorial uh, vectors of why and, and, and to, to, really ask that we as a, as a culture and, and that in these conversations like we're having right now, begin to explore with curiosity, you know, these whys, because we, in the end, as individuals are not served by even the, the, the best randomized trial. We are not served by statistics. We are not served by ICD-10 codes um, and, you know, CPT numbering. In the end, we want to understand what is happening and why it's happening. And sh- anything short of that is, you know, turning off the smoke alarm and letting the, the fire rage. And so the conversation that we might have around the whys of what we are calling postpartum depression um, is a conversation that really no one is having. <laughs> no one seems interested in because it's regarded as an urgent problem. And now, as you're sa- suggesting, I think many women who have struggled feel like finally this is you know, being brought into the right. light. That's a good thing. Right. And what many of us in, in our community have noted is that the moment that a diagnostic label is put forth um, as something to be destigmatized and celebrated and it gets a day on the calendar, well, that's because the, there are vested interests looking to broaden their market share. Right. right. It, it's not in the end a way to unravel what is happening for you. So, you know, when I learned about Brixanolone, which for those who, who don't know, um, is is now slated to be FDA approved for postpartum depression. It is a, um, a 60 hour 
uh, IV infusion, continuous, mm. um, with side effects and adverse effects that include loss of consciousness. Um, significant enough that it requires not necessarily inpatient, but it requires medical monitoring Mm -hmm. and separation of the mother from her, uh, infant, you know, newborn, um, so that she is not the primary caretaker for up to seven to 10 days. And now of course, at this very vulnerable time, that's a non-trivial matter, especially because the breastfeeding data as it goes, um, in this world is going to be insufficient to defend its safety. So it's likely going to be recommended that there be cessation of breastfeeding. Um, Another interesting tidbit is that this medication um, has a price tag of $34,000. And, you know, all for for what, right? So there were 274 women studied. um, Mm -hmm. And the the outcomes, the reason it was a six, I don't know if it's necessarily the reason, but it certainly looks suspicious that it was a 60 hour um, intervention is because that's when it separated from placebo in a, a fairly unimpressive way. If you know anything about the HAMD um, or Irving Kirsch's work, you know, around placebo effects and active placebo effects, you know, an yeah. injected anything has a very significant active placebo effect. Of course. And it, it does not separate from placebo at a month. So wow. you're going to do all this. For what? Right? Right. And do such harm to this, you know, sensitive bond between mother and infant and disrupt the breastfeeding relationship and all of the health benefits that breastfeeding confers to mother and infant. Um, It's just, it's really shocking. And you know that with that kind of price tag, it is going to be heavily heavily marketed and defended and the naysayers are going to be told how how could you you know right. how could you speak against this right. saving grace for women who are suffering and it's just we just kind of know how it's going to get played out and that's why I so appreciate you're just speaking with such um candor about the science you know the pseudoscience does not is 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 with the you know the the shoddy nature of the the drug trial um not with the critique uh so that that's really really problematic um I would also like to touch on another um, issue specific to women's mental health, and that is that in your um, in your book, Mind of Your Own, you uh, cite that one in four women are prescribed an SSRI antidepressant, and you know you were also you know commenting that when you were practicing conventional uh, psychiatry, you did often prescribe. Uh, medication to women who were pregnant, and I, I'm wondering if you can speak to to what your thoughts are today about the potential harms of women on SSRI antidepressants while pregnant, both to the mother and to the you know prenatal development. Yes. I can, you know, as somebody who has very much lived, maybe more extremely than anyone else on the planet, you know, prescribing um, uh, in both camps, right. I, I do have, I think, a unique perspective on that because I prescribed every day to pregnant when that was my specialty. That was the right. population that I was focused on. My entire private practice was, that was either right. preconception, pregnant, or postpartum. Right. And, you know, we had, listen, uh, you know, the, the the advisors and mentors that I had in that space actually helped me to appreciate how it, how we can interact with scientific literature because every new paper that would come out and at that time there were only maybe a couple dozen um, you know we would pick it apart and try to look at all its flaws and I became I think quite like skilled at learning how to to understand whether a paper is actually valuable or not but the thing about science right and pseudoscience is that you can arm yourself with science to defend any perspective. So in the end, you know, you have to have, in my opinion, a more coherent, you know, orientation towards your intentions, right? Like, what are we here to do? Are we here to simply mask symptoms, which in in my, you know, perspective and opinion as somebody very interested in the empowerment of women in the modern age, uh, I see masking of symptoms as a form of suppression. 
right? It's, you know, we're not burning them at the stake, but we mm-hmm. are, we're offering them a poison apple, right? And, and then we're sort of watching them go quietly into the corner and calling that, you know, our, our um, desired outcome. So we have to look at intentions because if your intention is simply to generate an altered state, well then, you know, pharmaceuticals may be exactly what you want. Um, they do that, not unlike as David Healy would say, you know, drinking vodka, you know, or you know, for social anxiety would have the same, you know, effect. Or Joanna Moncrief speaks to that too, like drug-based effects versus, um, you know, sort of resolving disease uh, level right. mechanisms, right? But you know, if your intention is to truly you know, get to the root and resolve and help a woman integrate what's going on, then even the question of applying medication doesn't come into come to bear. Mm-hmm. Right. So when I was prescribing, there was sort of a formula for how we would consent women. And, you know, and, and that's also where I learned about informed consent um, and, and what it consists of. So there are many things that I took from that training that still serve me to this day. Um, and we would talk about a couple of things, right? We would talk about the data around um, preterm, um, well, let's start in temporal order. So miscarriage, right? We would talk about the risk of primary pulmonary hypertension, which was a signal of harm that was that was normally uh, or typically at that time raised around Paxil. We would look at preterm birth risk. We would look at um, neon, what was euphemistically called or is perhaps still neonatal adaptation syndrome. Um, which is, you know, a phenomenon in the in the baby um, that can happen shortly after birth, and then we would look at, you know, sort of some of the long term studies, and we would try to ask, okay, so can we separate the impact of the disease, depression, let's say, if we're going to call it a disease, which we did, um, from the impact of medication. So that was always how we would look at the literature and try to see, okay, the signal of harm of medication relative to the signal of harm of untreated depression, which right. I guess means like do nothing, you know, for, for this woman in distress. Um, and, you know, what's surprising is that the signals of harm, according mostly to registry data, because remember, we don't study pregnant women in randomized trials. We, it's not done. It's not considered ethical. And so we don't have data on pretty much any interventions pharmaceutically that are offered to pregnant women. Remember that whenever there is a pharmaceutical product offered to you as a pregnant woman, know that it has not been subjected to even the most basic standards of, you know, uh, scientific um, reasoning. So what do we use instead? We use registry data. So this is pharmaceutical companies largely, although, um, you know, Nordic Countries have have a lot of registry data too, but pharmaceutical countries um, companies rather that collect passive data, women who call in to report adverse effects. So this is like the quality of science mm. we're talking about. Mm. But nonetheless, there is not really a significant teratogenic signal, which surprises me, right? Yeah. Considering what I know, having right. dedicated yeah. my practice to taking women off of these medications, mm. I think of them as being the most powerfully habit-forming chemicals on the planet. So it, it so, does surprise me yeah. that that isn't does, there. Does that, does that include um, premature birth, uh, the teratogenic sure. effect? Would, would that, no. So It's so like fingers, toes, organs. organs. Right, yeah. right, right. So, and what's your impression of the sort of, I don't know, the, the risks of prematurity? So the signal around miscarriage, teratogenicity, um, and prematurity really isn't that impressive, to okay. be honest. It's okay. really not where, in my opinion, knowing epigenetics, for example, I'm assuming most people have heard this term at this point, even 10 years ago, was not really in allopathia, okay? So uh-huh. I didn't know that term. I didn't know what it meant. We weren't looking at epigenetic research. We were looking at these crude outcomes. And according to most of these crude outcomes, apart from neonatal adaptation, syndrome, which at the time we didn't know whether it was toxicity or withdrawal. Of course, they're two, two you know, um, sides of the same coin. But nonetheless, the question was, is the baby being exposed to high levels of medication um, at parturition that it can't metabolize you know, with its in- infant liver? 
Um, or is it actually in withdrawal? We didn't know one way or the other, and, and arguably we still don't know, although what I now know about withdrawal seems far more likely that that's the case. And so these babies can require ICU stays is about 30% of cases. But yeah. we were really taught to say things like, well, it's very rare that it requires an ICU stay, and it's self-limiting, right? So it's it spontaneously resolves, and it's kind of like a don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. But now knowing the numbers are 30 percent. Yeah, it's, it's not infrequent, right? Which probably right. anyone who knows about withdrawal wouldn't be surprised right. to hear that, right? Because even in the literature, the right. growing withdrawal literature, right. is only about 50 percent of people who actually have significant withdrawal. So that kind of makes sense. Right. But then I started to look into the epigenetic literature, literature about methylation, literature about effects on the microbiome um, and, you know, even, you know, effects on telomeres and different mm-hmm. sorts of more subtle um, impact on the cortisol receptors. You know, mm-hmm. what are these medications doing, um, you know, in terms of in utero exposure and then let alone, you know, breastfeeding, et cetera. But mm-hmm. the, the questions are, are just not even remotely answered, right? There are a couple of researchers, maybe there's, I could show you seven papers um, that have begun to explore the epigenetic impact, right? So what mm-hmm. happens? We know, again, in, in, in Whitaker's community now, thankfully, we know that long-term exposures, even medium-term exposures, have unintended consequences in a very unpredictable way. Right. So would that right. not be the case for right. a newly forming human whose right. template of biology is being set right. at this right. time? Absolutely. And how are we going to monitor that, right? Because right. then you have a baby born, you know, with measurable toxicant exposure in the umbilical cord. Right. They're, right. you know, exposed to all sorts of different pharmaceutical products injected and otherwise. They are, you know, uh, fed formula, they're drinking fluoride, mm-hmm. the EMFs everywhere. And then right. you're going to check whether or not they have normal neurodevelopment at age nine, mm-hmm. right? So we'll not, right. I'm skeptical that we can ever really right. at this point answer the question. Right. So we want to exercise the precautionary principle. Um, since we can't know and we have reason to fear that they're not safe, why would we, why would we um, introduce um, a fetus to, to uh, an antidepressant? So what do you recommend to women who perhaps come into your practice on an antidepressant who are already pregnant or wanting to get pregnant and have, you know, very valid concerns about um, challenging withdrawal effects. Um, how do you address that? So I've noted over the years, again, having a lot of exposure to this population, that pregnancy is the easiest time to withdraw from psychotropics. Interesting. Period. I, I, if I knew why that was, <laughs> I would have the magic bullet for easing withdrawal, which I do not. Um, because I have, I have noted that a, a taper that might otherwise take nine months or 18 months, you know, can be done in the space of two months in, in the pregnant state. Now, I imagine if I were to theorize that has something to do with cortisol levels, that has something to do with the, um, you know, sort of neuroendocrine milieu of pregnancy that is highly unique. Um, and it's for whatever reason conducive to a level of, of resiliency that is not available even to the same woman at another time um, in her in her lifespan. So I I am an advocate for um, rapid tapers um, during pregnancy, mostly because I find that they're sustainable and very right. you know, very doable. Um, and I still feel that that the upfront investment which I apply to every person, every patient um, I encounter of sending this sort of what I call a signal of safety from many, many different directions, um, physiologically, psychologically, and arguably even spiritually in terms of self-empowerment, self-reclamation, which is basically this one-month protocol of lifestyle medicine. I still think that is an important upfront um, step before Mm -hmm. tapering, even in pregnancy. And, you know, the beauty of that intervention is it's not a Sophie's choice like it, it was for me when I would prescribe, you know, Zoloft to a, a pregnant patient. I have to think, oh, is this maybe not best for the baby, but it's best mm. for the mom and this mm-hmm. whole thing. You know, right. these kinds of lifestyle interventions, they're good for everyone involved, you know, so right, there's right. only benefit and side benefit. 
Okay. So, so in other words, you do the kind of the one month protocol that you describe in your book and on your website, and then, and then you taper the pregnant or, or you rapidly yes. taper her perhaps through that one month protocol. Um, I, I want to, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the the protocol uh, because there's a kind of a, a wonderful, elegant, intuitive quality to all of the recommendations that you make. You know, you uh, tell people to stop eating junk food and <laughs> right. processed food, not and <laughs> it's not right, but it's, no. it's it's so it's so wonderfully intuitive. Uh, you know, uh, eat real food, preferably organic, so you're not consuming pesticides. Uh, prioritize sleep, moderate exercise, get, you know, stop putting toxic chemicals on your body in terms of uh, uh, self-care products and stop using toxic chemicals in your cleaning products, lower EMF and blue light exposure, uh, learn how to relax through meditation and breathing exercises, uh, limit or eliminate pharmaceuticals. It's, It's all kind of yeah, like, of course, why wouldn't we be doing this? And yet we live in a culture that makes it so difficult for us to do these, you know, intuitively healthy, to make these intuitively healthy choices. And I imagine for a lot of your patients, it's it's hugely challenging because it's basically, you're telling them to change pretty much every aspect of their, their lifestyle. And so I, I guess I'm curious to know, um, do you kind of, approach on all fronts? Do you feel that it's important to do all of the above all at once? Or do you kind of, is there an entry point? What, what's, your ex, what's your experience and your, your recommendation? One of the reasons that I, you know, sort of believe so passionately in the power of these lifestyle changes, and I'll, I'll answer your question more directly in a moment, sure. is that the, the women who have come to me in private practice Unfortunately, I'm not their first stop, right? I am more often than not the last stop, like mm-hmm. just before state hospital, just before electroconvulsive therapy, mm-hmm. or after, you know, 25 years on five medications, chronically suicidal, multiple inpatient stays. And it's sort of, you know, there, there's a level of desperation in, in nearly every woman that I encounter for consultation that is palpable, you know? And so they, are extremely motivated, right? They're extremely ready. And so that's how I've been able to witness the the magnitude of change and to counter the frequent criticism I encounter, which is that this is just, oh, sure, this is for the worried well, you know, this is for, yeah, if you want to like a little blog worthy wellness tips, sure. Actually, you know, I have an entire clinical team of people devoted to writing up these cases because they're, in my opinion, as far as I know, you know, what's on PubMed.gov, they're, they're history making, they're precedent making. Um, that's what can come from these changes. Now, yeah. the, the fierce commitment, the uncomfortable commitment to oneself, you know, you could go from popping a couple pills a day and, you know, otherwise just like kind of drowning in your life, you know, to go from that to about two and a half hours of self-care demands a day is a major shift. Well, that's actually one of, in my opinion, the ways that our nervous system gets the sign and signal that change is possible, right? That's the way that we, we clear the snow so you can, you know, sort of ski new tracks because otherwise you're going to slip into your little rut. So I'm a big, big believer in the extreme approach. It's right. one month of your life. It's right. one month of your adult After life. After oftentimes years of suffering. Yes. Almost right. always. Almost right. always. Right. And right. and it's kind of like the ultimate self experiment. Mm-hmm. Under these conditions, who are you? Mm-hmm. Right? Under these right. baseline conditions. Don't right. you want to know? Right. So so you yeah. need to have a certain level of readiness, which is this elusive ingredient that I, I cannot induce, I cannot persuade. Right. Um, and it's not for everyone. You know, right. I have, um, you know, a large subscribership and a very small percentage of those people have, you know, participated in my online program. Right. 
it's, it's a level of readiness that requires a confrontation with parts of yourself that you need to be ready and courageous enough to defy. Because most right. of our programming says what? It says, you're not good enough. You're not worth it. It's not going to work for you. Right. This is your life. And right. the chief statement that I hear from almost everyone is, I'm broken. Right? I'm broken. Right. Well, this that's the chemical balance theory. That's, you yeah. know, what culture has been telling you, you know, that you've got a broken brain, it's genetically informed, um, you need a medication, you're sick, you have a diagnosis. And so it's very, it takes great, it takes, it has taken you great courage to step out of the kind of medical training that you, you know, were informed by to, to embrace this new approach. And it takes the average person great courage to say, no, I'm, I'm going to try this this other thing because this speaks to me. This this sounds right to me. You know, this science and this approach and this um, just philosophy of life feels right to me. And that's and that's what I have witnessed is that I'm not convincing anyone. In fact, what happens is there's like a little a little flicker inside of, you know, the, the people who decide to walk this path. And I think this would be true of anyone who's tapered off psychiatric medications. They, right. I think they would agree. It's a tiny right. flicker and, and someone, you know, just sort of saw it. And, and, and it, perhaps these cases that someone is me, you know, where I see that that flicker is there and I'm just reminding, you know, people right. that they have this capacity. So, you know, I am a big, my personality is oriented, you know, towards sort of like take the plunge and do it, like grab right. it, you know? Right. And I, you know, we are about to release a, a membership model um, called Vital Life Project, which is like the the more feminine offering that I haven't yet made. You know, I, I think of Vital Mind Reset as like my, my masculine offering. It's like, do it, fix, fix yourself, you know, kind of here's your tools. Um, do it or go home. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's not for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what if you just can't get there. What if you're interested, you feel a yes inside, you, you mm-hmm. want to sort of like begin this process, but you're terrified, you know, and, and you, need a, you need a small win, like you need a quick win. Um, and so that's what I'm realizing, you know, like if, if I want to really support a, a broader mass of people, you know, if we right. want to really keep this light bright for, for, for this movement, right. then we need to meet people where they are with like these mm-hmm. sort of smaller bites. Right. So, so what you're saying is that if you want a profound change very quickly, you really need to take on every tenet collectively because they will reinforce each other. They work in an integrative way and you will see profound change in a month. Yes. If for any number of reasons that's not something that you're able to take on um you can you're sort of offering this kind of gentler slower approach um as an alternative so that um you know that that would be another another way to go about it i, ha- I have a, a very kind of specific question do you find that for those individuals who kind of take on the whole package and really commit to the, the, the food, the sleep, the exercise, the toxic, you know, getting rid of all the, the toxins in their homes and on their bodies and the, the whole nine yards, that they are also able to taper more quickly from their medication, mm. that it has a kind of a synergistic benefit to tapering, or do you still kind of keep the taper very, very slow? That's a, that's a great question that I'm unfortunately very able to answer because I had five years of, of doing tape. So it was, it was basically after, yeah, after um, I read Anatomy of an Epidemic, I never started a patient on a prescription med- medication again. To that's this amazing. Day. Never did. Put down my pad. I'm done. Um, and I devoted myself to, to, to supporting tapers and also, you know, some autoimmune support, et cetera, other things. But um, that was my specific orientation. So I hadn't really understood the applicability of my experience with Hashimoto's to my patients yet. It wasn't clear. I didn't have a protocol or any of that. I knew, you know, yeah, you might think about like, you know, your diet. It was kind of like a window dressing 
to the taper. That's what we're here for is the taper, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I had a lot of years of, of trying to taper without this upfront commitment. And oh my, ask anyone in my life, what a nightmare it was for me. I was running an outpatient rehab, it felt like. you know, I was paged around the clock. Mm-hmm. I was filling out medical disability forms left and right. I was so overwhelmed by the, the, the tragedies in my midst, you know, it's just incredible. I mean, literally it looks like I was running an AIDS clinic and anyone who's, who's had a bad taper experience will will know what I'm talking about, that you literally can be physically disabled to an extent that is unparalleled, you know, in, in, in any sort of, um, you know, acute medical condition that we know about, maybe a short, short of an acquired, uh, acute immunodeficiency, you know, bleeding and, intractable pain and inability to move and hair loss and menstrual um, aberration. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And so, so once I sort of got straight with this, um, I am serious about it and, and really had like a no compromising kind of orientation towards it. That's when I saw the difference. So, so now not only is it that tapers are more rapid and the um, introduction of uh, the notorious coffee enema actually to my um, practice protocol, which I learned from my mentor, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, mm-hmm. then brought it another quantum leap. Okay. But to, for me, the, it's really um, what I, I feel is available to everyone is a physiologic stabilization, right? So if you can balance your blood sugar, you can reverse some of your um, toxicant burden, you can support your own detox capacity, you can eat a more nutrient rich diet, which then will go on to stabilize all of your, you know, biochemical functioning um, as a human organism. Mm-hmm. And, you, and then you're applying the stress of a physiologic stress of a taper. It's, it's just like the bucket analogy, right? If you're mm-hmm. going to drain your bucket, then when you fill it up with the stress of a taper, it's not going to overflow. Mm-hmm. Now, what I find is that the, the psycho-spiritual aspects that are very real, very real, you have to birth your adult self from beginning of taper to end of taper and so maybe that's part of why these tapers take the time that they do because that process is is a you know it's a a metaphysical process right that that requires the addressing of a lot of inbuilt um and learned patterns that are no longer serving you right so you essentially have to go from a, a dependent victim which, as you've alluded to, we are enculturated to orient, you know, um, towards. We, we kind of want to because we're still living from our, our child selves, right? We, we still are holding that, like, feeling that we haven't been acknowledged for our suffering, right? right? That we weren't loved completely or attended right. to unconditionally, right? So you have to go from that to mm-hmm. an emancipated and empowered, individuated adult consciousness mm-hmm. in the space of your taper. That's literally the right. ask. And if that doesn't interest you, you should not consider tapering medication because this is not just about, oh, I don't feel like taking, paying for my Prozac anymore or my Lamictal or Abilify. This is literally that, that important, an initiation to oneself. So can we keep you, your physical health stable throughout that process? That's pretty much like what I offer. And then of course, you know, sort of orienting towards the, 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 um, the power, meaning, and even beauty of, of this emergent shadow material and, and metabolizing this, you know, sort of right. inner darkness. Like I, right. I do believe passionately in that, but that's yeah. really the difference of this protocol is it offers that physical foundation. That physical foundation. And um, so I, I think that uh, some of the, you know, some of the language and some of the, you know, thoughts that you just sort of added to the conversation kind of dovetail very well with my next question. And that is that um, several of the um, items on your kind of one month uh, protocol um, lend themselves, translate very well to a kind of a Western science um, culture, a Western science kind Mm -hmm. of worldview. Um, You know, we can understand the science of eating real food and the uh, science of uh, the harms that uh, pesticides uh, cause. Um, We can understand the science of sleep and the science of exercise. Um, But the uh, sort of the, the one 
uh, tenet um, that you describe as just absolutely it's 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 a non-negotiable is meditation, mm-hmm. and that is sort of the one tenet that doesn't translate quite so readily or fully to the kind of Western science orientation. Okay, well here's the science. Here's what medication is. Uh, what meditation is. That was an interesting slip. I do that all the time. Isn't that a funny? Yeah, it's like, oh, wow. (laughs) Here's, uh, you know, the the real science behind meditation. We can kind of just break it down to to the science, but but it doesn't fully digest. It doesn't fully absorb into just kind of scientific principles. Or do you think that it does? Uh, Yeah, I do actually. Uh Um, and, and the reason that I know a lot of the pre-existing science, much of which is out of um, the Benson Institute, you know, it's like 40 years of it, is because I knew all of, I was aware of all of this science. A lot of it is epigenetic, like looking at expression of like, um, you know, uh, insulin receptor sensitivity and, you know, different um, sort of parameters of an inflammatory um, cytokine expression in like 20 minutes of exposure to a guided meditation. So it's so the most passive, effortless like form of right. meditation. We're not talking about like, you know, high levels of transcendental practice or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew about this literature way before I personally committed. Meditation was the last thing I committed to. And I often joke the people who are most resistant to meditating are the ones who need it the most. I certainly fit that category. And I just, you know, I just couldn't, I wasn't desperate enough to be honest, you know, and it wasn't until actually my, um, my mentor very suddenly died in 2015 that I committed the next day to a pre-dawn meditation practice that has changed my life, you know, that I, I haven't missed a day since. Um, but I, I couldn't quite be persuaded by the existing literature and it was, it was, it is there. And, um, you know, like I don't personally practice trend, TM, like Transcendental Meditation, but I mean, there's incredible wealth of, of really high level research to support right. that. Right. Um, I, so and it, it does translate yeah. to, to it Western science. Mm-hmm. It does. And even, right. you know, my preferred form, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I'm um, trained in Kundalini Yoga mm-hmm. um, and meditation. And, you know, once I began to feel the effects, benefits, you know, influence of um, this kind of approach to meditation. And it's, it's one of the more um, ancient forms of meditation. And it involves often like a mantra and a mudra. It's like a hand gesture of some kind, or even a movement. Sometimes there's a movement of your body. Um, and then sometimes there's a eye gaze that you're supposed to have, like looking down here or up there. Uh, it's, it's, it keeps you very busy. So it's a, it's very amenable to the novice, you know, like to, to somebody who is otherwise going to be thinking about what they need to buy at the, you know, sort of grocery store instead of focusing on zero point consciousness, it, it, it helps. It's like a lot of crutches, right. To sort of keep you right. busy in a way, yeah. um, distracted from your, your sort of stream of, of thoughts. But I remember, you know, coming across, um, the, this one particular study by David Shenahoff Khalsa, his friend and wonderful person. And he, he showed me it was like a 70% remission rate for symptoms of OCD. You wow. show me one That's pharmaceutical amazing. product with that remission That's rate. I mean, the it's like 23%. Yeah. And right. it was, it was, you know, I wrote this up. This is a, a blog that lives on my site and it's, um, this was a Kundalini yoga meditation intervention. Oh. And so I thought, okay, this is a randomized trial. Mm-hmm. And I never heard about this in my medical training. I should have at least heard about it, even if they were to, you know, dismiss it or debunk it. But that's sure. also when I started to appreciate, wow, I really was only exposed to one, one, you know, version of, of right. the story. So the science right. absolutely exists. Right. Uh, it's just, no one has specified which form is best, not unlike diet. No one has specified how long you need to meditate or in yeah. what seated position or standing or walking or whatever. Yeah. But what we do know is that there are these um, sort of lifestyle interventions that have the capacity to rearrange many different um, markers of internal imbalance. Of course, the, the most popular form of research is around cytokines, so, so um, inflammatory markers and messengers, although there are others. Um, and we can see in real time, you know, that these, these interventions have physiologically measurable mm-hmm. impact. 
Right. So I'm curious to know, you said that, you know, that was the sort of the one piece that you were resistant to, so that even though you were familiar with the science, you understood that it translated well into science, that there was still a kind of a skeptic within you that took took a moment before you, you, or or it took a, a, a great loss to kind of say, yes, I need to to do this, I need to add this to my my health regimen. Yes, um, and you said that that it made a great difference for you. And I, I'm wondering if it's something that is describable. You know how oh, yeah. it shifted your sense of wellness um, after adding a meditation practice. Absolutely. I mean, I had tried meditating. You know, here and there. In fact, you know, I I did an entire training, it's just the consistency was never available to me. I always had some excuse and there was always some reason I never could sort of work it into a routine. So once I committed, it was about two months um, before I literally felt rewired as a person. And I'm sure many can, you know, identify with how I would have described myself, which was I was a stress addict. You know, I was somebody who was up late into the night work and a workaholic, working um, almost sort of scanning my life constantly for the things to worry about, the things that I would agitate myself about or sort of like put my mind towards fixing and solving. And I would often um, get triggered, you know, so I would get like racing hard and sweating and an urgent feeling like I had to do something like by email communication. So interpersonal relationships always felt like a landmine of potential problems I had to, you know, impose myself upon. Um, And and I literally, in the space of those two months, broke my relationship to stress. That's so incredible. that I can say from that point on, I do not, I can't even remember the last time I said I'm stressed out. Mm-hmm. Literally, I can't, it's been years. And that is not because I have a placid lake of a life, okay? <laughs> so nothing, arguably things have even gotten more intense and, and challenging and more, you know, deeply challenging. Um, since you know 2015, let's say, but it's my my sense of I don't know capacity to it's it's almost like my my nervous system is saying we've got this we've got this it's always saying that we've got this whatever it is bring it we've got it you know wow. it's a sense of being able to receive what it, I'm experiencing without having to just always have like oh no 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 like that feeling. Um, and I, I actually think that the pre-dawn element, unfortunately, um, is, was a big part of it for me because I started to wake up at 530, um, which meant that I couldn't go to bed at 2 a.m. anymore, which changed my whole circadian rhythm. Um, and now these days I go to bed at nine o'clock with my daughters. So that's, I have a very, very different lifestyle than I did, you know, back in the day in Manhattan. Um. But so who knows, you know, which elements of that. And I even did some research to try and find out, well, what is it about pre-dawn contemplation? Um, You know, because many, you know, from mystical traditions to religious traditions, prize this ambrosial, it's called like hour of about 40 minutes before sunrise. And I found that actually nomadic, um, there's some research, mostly anthropological, but nomadic tribes they don't wake up. Wouldn't you think they wake up with the sunrise? Like that's what I yes. would imagine. Yes. Um, and in fact, they wake up at the coldest point of the night, which is 40 minutes before sunrise. So mm. that there's something very special about that time. And I remember even as a medical intern, um, that's when people cross over. That's when people die is like between 4 and 6 a.m. And yes, you could offer some endocrinologic explanations for that, et cetera. But it's like regarded by many different, um, you know, traditions as being a very, like a time that the veil is very thin. And so, you know, to sort of begin your day, put a stamp on your rising cortisol that says everything is okay. Cause if it wasn't, you wouldn't pause. Right. And that's why I'm such a believer in the daily commitment where I say like, literally it can be three minutes, but do not miss a day ever. Right. <laughs> because right. it's in that consistent signal that your nervous system finally can move into regeneration um, and out of fight or flight. Well, that was just completely fascinating. What a what a wonderful and um, 
innovative note to to finish on. And I, I just, I am so grateful that you uh, gave us an hour of your time and your Thank wisdom. You. It was really, really wonderful to speak with you. And I hope we have an opportunity to speak again. I loved your questions. This was really, really enjoyable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Well, I'd just like to thank Dr. Olfman and Dr. Brogan for that interview. And if you'd like to find out more about Dr. Brogan's work, you can visit the website kellybroganmd.com. So thanks for listening. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.